so, so one question is like, who are you? That's a, it's a weird question, isn't it? Who are you? What makes you tick? What makes you happy? What makes you sad? What grieves you? What, what makes you angry? Where and what do you do to find meaning in your life? And if you want to know what, where you find meaning in your life, think about the conversations you've had this week. What do you talk about most? When you're alone and, it's, and you have a quiet moment, what occupies your thoughts? What do you do when you find yourself getting stressed out with different circumstances or situations in life? What do you do when you're stressed? How do you deal with that? If I, if, if I just had this, then things would be good. What comes to your mind? If I, if I just had this one thing... When do you feel most secure? What makes you feel secure? What's most valuable to you? There's a lot of layers to those questions, right? Like the onion, you peel back layers and layers and layers. And I think those are really good questions. They're questions that have been being asked of us for centuries and they reveal a lot about who you are, what you believe in, where you find your identity, where you seek for significance. They go to the core of who we are. So let's read Jonah this morning, chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 7 to 16. And we're going to see that the questions I asked you are, have been being asked for a very long time. And I found this really fascinating. So starting at verse 7 to verse 16, it says this. And remember, Jonah has been on the boat. They've asked, they've all been calling out to their God. Well, actually, let's go back to, to verse 4. Is that possible, Vern? Starting at verse 4. We, I'll, I'll read, that's fine. I'll start at verse 1, actually. Now the word of the Lord, I was really messy up. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Jaffa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it, into the ship, into the cargo hold, to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so the captain of the ship came and said to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots. They drew straws. And the lot fell, Jonah's straw to Jonah. Then they said, Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And they ask him some questions. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea it may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, I want you to pick me up and throw me, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to enter into what you want us to understand this morning. That you would give us insights not only into who you are, but insights into our own hearts and those illicit loves, affections that we have that are leading us away from your presence. And so God, I pray that you would make us just receptive today to, to you by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I was struck by how things haven't changed really in 2,500 years as I was reading this, right? What's the, one of the first questions that you ask somebody when you meet them? What do you do? Like, what's your occupation? Right? It's, it's quite profound. These questions, are, they're meeting Jonah. They're trying to get to the root of, what do you do for fun? Where do you live? Where did you grow up, Jonah? They, we ask those same questions because we, we want information. We want to we have an understanding of each other. We want to we know somebody. We want to know their story. We want, we want, we're looking for insight of what they believe, what makes them... Tick, one of the things that I love to do after I've known someone for a very long time is I love to meet their parents, right? Because it makes sense. Like, you, you, it, things just come together. It's really amazing because our families have such a deep impact on us, right? Good, bad, ugly, it all affects us. There's another layer to the questions that's happening that these sailors are asking that is just beyond knowing about Jonah, and I wonder if it's the same for them as it is for us today. They want to actually find out who the God is who's causing the storm. These sailors are not, they're not sitting in a circle on the deck with hands clasped, just sharing their stories. They're in the middle of a storm and there's urgency here. It's chaos. And the questions that they're being asked while this storm is raging and their boat is being torn apart are trying to get to the root of why are we in this situation, right? 
What's caused this? Who's the cause of this? The sailors have rowed. They've thrown everything overboard that was not needed in order that the boat might sit a little higher in the water so that the water wouldn't come in as easily, so it doesn't capsize. They've each prayed to their own gods in hopes of salvation, of deliverance, that rescue would come, that this storm would be over. And what's happened? Nothing. It's getting worse. They're desperate. Their lives are on the line. They don't know if they're going to live, and they want to know why and who is responsible for bringing this disaster upon them. So they, 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 do, they draw straws. And Jonah picks the short one. And this is where we pick it up. They're asking Jonah some really basic questions. What's your job, Jonah? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? But really what they're asking Jonah is they're trying to discern which God should be prayed to. They've prayed to their gods. It hasn't worked. If you read the story here, Jonah doesn't pray until he's in the fish. They've all prayed to their gods. And he's the only one that hasn't. Maybe he's got the answer. So really what they're asking him is, who's your God? And we've talked about this many times before, that in this particular culture of polytheism, meaning there are many different gods, and the gods were connected to your occupation. So there was the God of the woodworkers. There was a God of the ironworkers. There was a God of this, right? So when they're asking his occupation, what's your job? They're asking, let's see who, who the God is, right? But also, in this particular day and time, different regions had different gods. Oh, you're from there? Oh, oh, that's the god of Artemis. So Ephesians, in Ephesus, there was a temple, the temple of, to Diana, which was Artemis. And so if you read the story in Acts 19, where Paul goes and he's, he's saying, well, these gods are no gods at all, and people are being outraged because he's, he's calling the god Artemis, it's not real god, right? So there was regional gods, and then there was gods for the countries. This was this polyistic culture. There was Poseidon was the god of the sea, the storms, and of horses. Venus is the goddess of love, of sex, of beauty, and fertility. Zeus was the god of the sky, lightning. There's all these different gods that were being worshipped. They called out to their all these different gods, and nothing happened. The storm is just getting worse. And here Jonah draws this short straw... And now they ask him these questions to discern, well, who's your God, Jonah? As I was reflecting on this story, it seems a bit unsophisticated and a lot of superstition, doesn't it? We've moved, we've moved way beyond that. These men have asked Jonah some questions and his response, however, and the order of his response reveals something very fascinating. What's the first question that they ask? Do you remember? What's your occupation? So when usually you're in a conversation with someone, they ask you a question, what do you respond? You respond with the first question they ask you, right? What's the first thing that Jonah responds? Do you remember? I'm a Hebrew. He doesn't refer to where he lives, he doesn't refer to his occupation, he refers to, I'm a Hebrew. 
and I fear the God of heaven and of the sky and of the earth. That's very telling, and I think it's actually giving us the reason why it is that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because the number one thing that defined Jonah was his ethnicity, not God. He believed in God, but it was his ethnicity being a Hebrew that was his deepest identity. It was the core layer of his onion. And he's walking away, because you remember the very... A few weeks ago, we talked about the reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he didn't want God to show grace and mercy to pagan people. Because it was God. I'm a Hebrew and he's my God. Do you you see a struggle? It's not that Jonah did not love God. It's not that Jonah did not believe in God. But he did hold his ethnicity, being a Hebrew, which was a good thing, but to him it had become an ultimate thing. And that ultimate thing is what moved Jonah to take steps away from him who is ultimately good, God. And so my question that I was asking myself is, do you believe that there's idol worship today in this culture? Right? Like, because I don't know if we really give it enough thought. And if you, if you watch, as you go through the Bible, you'll realize it's, it's idols that are being exposed so that you know that they're idols. See, the nature of, of sin, of deception, is you, when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived, right? So you watch Paul. If you go read Acts 19 and part of Acts, you see Paul exposing the idols of the culture. Like, oh, there's the, oh, that one there, that unknown God. He's, he's exposing idolatry, and he's putting a name on it. In fact, it says this in 1 John 5, 20 and 21. So here's the last two verses of 1 John. It ends this way, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he's given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. What a weird way to end a letter. John Calvin has said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true, true God. Why is Jonah going in the opposite direction? Why is he turning away from God? Because there's something that he loves more than God at that moment. So he's unwilling to listen to him. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the very first commandment, you shall have what? No other gods before me. Every other commandment, the rest, Martin Luther said, are a result of disobeying the first one. If you follow on in Exodus 20 verses 4 and 5, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself to carve image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
Mark 12, 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jeremiah 2, 13, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, think of Jonah, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You and I have been created by God. We've been created in the image of God for God. Remember when Jess read that we've been created by him and for him in Colossians? The struggle is that we, we've been called to find our satisfaction, our fulfillment, our significance. We're to look for affirmation, power, rescue, salvation, rest, hope, love in the person of God. And yet we, we find ourselves finding it in other things. This morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really practical in a lot of these, and I'll, I'll give you some of my confessions as I've been working through Jonah. And I know there's a lot more confession that's needed because there's so many more idols that I'm not aware of in my own life yet. So this, I'm not speaking at you today. We're learning together today. And if, there's, if you have a question, you're welcome to interrupt me. Because we're here to learn together about how we can have God at the, at the center of our hearts and our affections. And so the struggle is that we give ourselves to someone or something other than God, which is idolatry. Scripture actually calls it committing spiritual adultery. Right? So if I'm to love my wife, but I'm giving my heart to another woman, this is an illicit love. That is, it's adultery. So... That's the image in the Bible, is we're to give our love and our affections totally to God, but we give them to something else, and it's called committing spiritual adultery or idolatry. Those two things are synonymous. So as I was thinking about Jonah and these sailors and each calling out to their own gods, I was struck by how polytheism is still alive and well today, that I will make sacrifices I will place my hope, I will look for my significance, and I will begin to bow my heart and to serve those things that I think will give it to me. And they have different names today, but just, just a few of them. One is materialism. So we're going to look, what is materialism? What is consumerism? What is individualism? What about the family? Is it possible that the most amazing things that we have in our lives, our families and our marriages, could actually become idols? Possibly. Timothy Keller writes this, we were made in the image of God. There can be no image without an original of which the image is a reflection. So you're created in the image of God to image God. So that means there's something greater than yourself that you are to represent. This means to be in the image means that human beings were not created to stand alone. We must get our significance and security from something of ultimate value outside of ourselves. To be created in God's image means we must live for the true God or we will have to make something else God and orbit our lives around that. So all those questions that I asked at the very beginning are trying to get at the heart of what's your life orbiting around? What do you value? So an idol or a false God can be anything in your life. Usually... They're good things. And that's why they're so hard to detect. But it's those good things become the ultimate things. An idol is where you and I try to get something for ourselves and that deep place in our hearts that we can only truly get from God. 
And so there's many things that we can look to to save us, to give us hope, to give us a sense of security, to give ourselves meaning and significance and salvation and love and power and affirmation, comfort, purpose. But if it's not in God, it is idolatry. So what is materialism? A psychologist by the name of Kasser wrote a book called The High Price of Materialism. This, he's not a believer. But as he describes his and others' research, it showed that when people organize their lives around extrinsic goals, things outside of themselves, such as product acquisition, so possessing more things, they report greater unhappiness in relationships, poorer moods, and more psychological problems. And I've been reading through a book called Paradigms of Virtue by my great aunt about my great grandmother. 1910, they moved to Bazano Brooks, Alberta. They had one, there's a story of my grandpa who went to visit some neighbors who lived about I don't know, five or six miles outside of town. It's in the middle of winter. And as he's coming back, a pack of wolves decide that they're hungry. He's on their favorite horse. And they're about to kill him. And so as he's riding along, he would throw a glove. <laughs> then he would throw his hat. Then he would, and they would attack that. And then he'd throw another glove. And they'd attack that. And next thing you know, it was his jacket. And by the time he got into the town where the wolves would go no more, he had only his, his indoor clothes on. The horse collapsed and died, their favorite horse. And then it proceeds to tell the story of how they had to find material to make him a new winter jacket because he didn't have one anymore. Like they had nothing, but as you read the story, they were happy. They possessed next to nothing. And so materialism says the more that I have, the happier I'll be. But, but if you read history or if you look at other countries, go visit a, a comfort country that has poverty. And you tell me and ask me if people are happy. I asked my doctor one day as I was sitting in his office, I was just curious because you, you and I both know that anxiety and depression is greater than it's ever been in our culture. You hear about it all the time. I asked him, what about in third world countries? He says, it, it's not really as prevalent. Because they don't have time to think about those things. Very interesting, isn't it? The more affluent, the more we possess, and yet the more unhappy we become. And that's, that's the, the belief, right? Materialism, the belief that the more that you and I can have, possess, the happier we'll be, the more fulfilled we'll be. We begin to think that the things that we have are going to change our lives. In one of the examples or stories that I read, it was of a man who wanted to grow in the relationship with his moody 13-year-old daughter. And he figured the best way to do that was to build a swimming pool in the backyard. But it's not just about possessing and having things, it's about what those things represent. The more that you have, it gives a sense of power and control over the course of your life. You can control your security. You can, I'm more significant than you because, well, look at me. I, I don't live there or 
I don't drive that. We begin to compare ourselves and we begin to have a sense of significance by what we possess. The more that you have in the bank, the more secure you feel. But that's really untrue because everything could crash in a moment. Money's not bad. But we've also noted that the more that people possess and the richer that people come, the more they're unwilling to let go of their wealth and help lift others out of poverty. It's, it's, it's the lower income people that actually give more of their money away to help people who are hurting. Because when our identity and our success and our affirmation is found by what we possess, it's very hard to give that away. There's a story of a farmer. I was telling Brooke this this morning. He was very good. He raised cattle. And he had a favorite cow. And the cow had unexpectedly given birth to two calves. And so he made an agreement with God. He said, when I sell them, I will give the proceeds I make on one of them completely to the church, God. And he told his pastor about this, and a few weeks later, the, the man informed his pastor. I'm sorry to say, Reverend, but the Lord's calf died. For many of us, there's a lot of the Lord's calves that are dying. We don't give to God in a planned, committed way. We're not generous with what we have because we, we're trying to find our meaning in it. We wait to see if we have money to do everything we want, and then we give to God. We're, we're not like the widow who gave her one might. We're like the rich who are making noise in the bin. Maybe that's because materialism, what you possess, is, has become an idol to you. Remember, in contrast, Christ, who is infinitely rich. Jesus gave not just the excess of all of his wealth, but he gave his life for you and for me. There's another side to materialism, uh, and it, I was reminded this week, I watched a... Uh, a documentary on Netflix some time ago called The Minimalists. I think Perry, you told me about it. And what struck me, we live in, a, in an age where, and, and, and I see the tension. I see people who've grown up in quite well-off homes, and they're taking a totally different approach to life. And the parents are just like, buy a home, do something well with your money. But they've seen their parents. I, and it came out of, I was sitting in the Nissan dealership one day, and there was this lady who was on her third, second or third husband, and she was angry, telling it how she was angry with her daughter because her daughter wasn't making much of her life. She's being irresponsible. She doesn't care about her education. And on and on and on she went. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking about, well, she's watched you be successful. And now you want her to be like you, but you've on your third husband and you're unhappy and you're angry at the world, Right? So there's another side to materialism. It's called minimalism. I'm going to just give everything away and I'm going to live a really simple life. But you're still defining yourself by what you don't possess. 
It's just a reverse of materialism, which is becoming more popular today. I was telling Connor and Cassie as they came in this morning that at Christmas time, um, I was having a chat with them. They had just moved into a new neighborhood that's better than the neighborhood that we are in. And, and, and the conversation, I realized in that conversation that my conversation wasn't a Christian conversation. Oh, you got out of that neighborhood? So you get to that neighborhood? And I realized, like, no, Jesus came to the worst neighborhood, right? Like, so quickly we begin to think in a way that isn't of the gospel. Oh, those people, the, right? Do you, do you understand? Am I making sense? We define ourselves by what we possess or where we live. Consumerism is a bit different. It's not so much about what we possess, but it's how we use the things and the people around us to make us happy. I was explaining this to Jabin the other day as we were driving in the car. Marriage has always been about vows, about a covenant. So part of those covenantal vows are for what? For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. Right? It's a covenant. But that's not how marriage works today in our modern day culture. The reason why is we've turned our spouses into commodities. And if my spouse isn't making me happy or giving me what I want, then I will find someone who will give me what I want. But that changes the whole narrative of what marriage is about. About Christ who sacrificed everything for the sake of his bride. Not because she deserves it. Until death do us part, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And so in marriage, we're living out the gospel. And as soon as we change that, we stop. We make marriage about us and not about Christ. That's consumerism. I'll stay in this marriage as long as you help me fulfill my desires and make much of me. And if you're not willing to do that, then you end up falling in love with someone else who is saying they will do that for you. And we use the language, well, I don't love them anymore. But that's actually not Christian either because God told us to love our enemies. Right? You see the struggle? I've seen it in lots of different little Facebook memes and different things about don't hang around with negative people that drag you down because they're not going to get you where you want to go. Could you imagine if Jesus looked at me that way? Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that good. <laughs> and neither are you. We begin to, to use people. And if someone doesn't support you or maybe challenges you a little bit, then you'll find someone who will support you and won't challenge you. But yet, every time I interact with the Word of God, it's those things that are happening. God's challenging me. He's rebuking me. He's encouraging me. But He's not just telling me what I want to hear. And if, if I think God is telling me everything that I want to hear, then I probably don't know God. Because His ways are not my ways and His thoughts are not my thoughts how many times do we let God down and yet there he is loving us faithfully never leaving or forsaking us and so we can begin to use things people even the church is a commodity what does this church have for me well it doesn't really have anything what I want so therefore I will go find a church that does have what I want that will serve me but yet the, that's not the heart of Christianity 
In Matthew 20, 28, it says this, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see how pervasive consumerism is? And it can go into the way we view our, our relationship with God. God, I've done all these things for you. Now, why aren't you doing this for me? No, we don't do things to get. We do things because he's given us everything. Otherwise, we're turning it into this business transaction. So I, I guess I'm wanting you to help you understand as, as I'm beginning to see more clearly in my own life of how pervasive materialism, consumerism is, is even in my life, is in my life. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my, my portion. What about individualism? Timothy Keller explains that individualism is, is uh, an identity that comes through in self-expression, through discovering one's most authentic desires and being free to be one's authentic self. So we have this narrative that comes into our lives every day that says that your self-fulfillment, you need to follow your heart, you need to believe in yourself, you need to chase your dreams, your life and joy are in your own hands, so be whomever and whatever you want to be, and then you'll be free and you'll be happy. Individualism places man at the center of the story, not Christ. Freedom is not found in giving yourself fully and completely to Jesus and his will, but living and trusting in your own will. Denying yourself nothing, it is believing and trusting that you know what's best for you and that you are your own savior. I, I want to... I'm trying to help you and myself understand the idols and all the language that moves us to embrace false gods. If you're on social media, you will see this everywhere once you, when you just meditate on this a little bit. And, and some, of, some great Christian people whom you really love, you're going to have an opportunity to speak in your life. Do you really believe that? Do I really believe that? The movie Frozen. What's the main theme song for, huh? Let it go, right? Just listen to some of the lyrics here. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once control me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. That's the narrative of individualism. It's all around us. So let it go. Let it go. I'm one with the wind in the sky. Let it go, let it go. You'll never see me cry. Here I stand, here I say, let the storm rage on. Self-empowerment. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to make me my own God and I will be free and fulfilled and happy. But what about the decisions that you made a year ago or two years ago that totally failed? You really want to trust yourself, right? Like, come on, how many times have we made decisions? That because our wisdom isn't, isn't infallible. 
And then there's, there's regional gods. Maybe we'll just have a, a little quick discussion here. Timothy Keller, in a book that I was reading, or something I was reading lately, he's talked about regional gods. So he used, he's in, he's in no New York City, and so he uses this example. In New York City, the god of New York City is career. Right? It's career. And he, he made a really powerful statement. He said that because that's the god, and you need to do whatever, if you want to advance in your career, and you want to reach to the top, you cannot be a good mom or dad or husband or a wife. You will sacrifice your children if you want to get to the top of your career. Because you have to. You can't get there any other way. Then he talked about Boston. Well, Boston's about education. It's about intellect. Philadelphia is the city of what? Family. So, so when you think of the Comox Valley or Canada, what do you think the gods of this valley are? Recreation capital of the world. People move here. They retire here to live leisure. Absolutely. What else? Health. What do you mean by that? Fitness. Eating healthy. So what do you think? What, what leisure or, or Gary, what, 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 what's it going to give you? Yeah, like, so what, what's, how is that a God? while ago riding, uh, mountain biking, which I like to do, I was struck by some of my friends who ride to find rest. And I was realizing that if I truly believe in the gospel of Christ, I don't have to recreate to rest, I recreate from a place of rest. If that makes sense. The God of Venus, right? Strength, beauty. Really, our, our, I, I, I think one of the things that motivates us in the physical aspect of fitness and all these different things is, is we don't want to grow old. We don't want to contemplate that there is an e something eternal, and so we're trying to attain it outside of Christ. The other idol that I see in our culture, specifically in North America, is the idol of family. When I say family, I'm not thinking of all the, I'm thinking of all the relationships within a family, marriage, parents, kids. Is family a good thing? Yeah, absolutely, right? Is marriage a good thing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a God-created thing. But let's say that as a dad, I want to be the best dad ever. If my significance and my identity comes from being the best dad ever, a couple of things are possibly going to happen. Number one, I'm going to push my kids to be the best so that they look good, that they exceed and they, they excel, but it's actually not for them. It's because I want the feeling of seeing them success because it reflects on me and gives me a sense of significance, right? So a while ago, this is a confession, and you're, you'll judge me, but that's your issue between you and God, because he loves me. <laughs> One of my, my guilty pleasures, which Lisa can't stand, is I like UFC, the ultimate fighting championship. 
the dedication that, that these men and women have to their craft just amazes me. I think of, you know, where Paul says, I beat my body to make it a slave, right? I'm spiritualizing it now to justify it, maybe. I don't know. But I remember one Sunday in particular, Jabin and Isaiah are playing over here, and Jabin's got Isaiah in a headlock telling him to tap out. Lisa is horrified, and when, I, when we got home, I was horrified because I'm hearing it, right? And rightly so. But I felt like a failure as a dad. What are people going to think of me as a pastor, right? When you have really high expectations of your children... And you're seeking your significance, your successes through them. You will inevitably crush them. You will crush them because they can't bear the weight of being your God. And secondly, it will alienate them. Because they know they can't be your God. And you and I will be devastated as parents when we begin to reflect and they don't meet our standards. To trust and place my hope and significance in my kids who are temporal and imperfect will always leave me lacking. It will also disable me from loving them in a way that is gracious, merciful, compassionate, and kind and will probably create a bitterness and anger in my heart towards them. The problem is not loving our children too little. The problem is that we don't love God enough. In my marriage, if I look to my wife, to Jerry Maguire, you complete me phrase... then I place on my wife the responsibility of being my God and she can't bear that up. And when she doesn't bear that up because she isn't perfect, although sometimes I think she is, I will be devastated and she will be crushed and our relationship will find a separation. Then there's religious idolatry. Is truth good? Is truth good? Yeah. Is, is it good to, to know God's word and to study God's word? Absolutely. And yet, your study of God's word, my study of God's word, our pursuit of truth in itself can become an idol, a religious idol. And I was reminded that of that this past week. Second confession. You, don't worry, you're going to get your turn to confess later. So. I was listening to a sermon and I was really disturbed the way this young man was speaking about the Word of God. He was trying to encourage the congregation to read God's Word and to be in God's Word. And someone had come to them and said, but I don't find reading reading God's Word fun. He says, I'll tell you what, this is what we're going to do. Come to my office. So the person came to the office and he put on the Avengers music opened his Bible to the beheading of John the Baptist, which is where it fell open. And the music just brought it all to life, and it was really fun. And I began to think about 
the word of God in Scripture of how in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah comes and he's confronted with Christ and the word of God in the, in the person of Christ. And what happens to Isaiah? He falls down on his face and he says, Woe is me as I'm a man who's undone and I live among a people of unclean lips. He's overcome. Or I think about Joshua where he's out and the great warrior comes to him, which is again Jesus and speaks to him. And Joshua is filled with great fear before this great warrior. Or I think of Jesus when you read the book of Revelation seated on the throne and everyone is bowed, the twelve elders and myriads and myriads of people are falling down before the word of God. We know that the word of God is referred to a sword that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and of merit. And it goes right to the and it reveals all, nothing's hidden from him. That's terrifying to me. The word of God convicts, it rebukes according to 2 Timothy 3. It encourages as well, but, but I don't think the word of God is fun. See, and you're agreeing with me. And as I listened to this, I was waiting for Lisa to come home because I wanted to go and tell her how, how ridiculous this was. And I, I found myself having joy as I looked down on this young man who's trying to do his best. That if I look down on him, it'll justify my ability and my understanding of the word of God is better than him, but my justification is to never be found that way. It comes through Jesus Christ, and I was rebuked. Are there places to speak about those things and to challenge? Yes, absolutely. So quickly, a good thing can become an ultimate thing. And we justify, we find our significance in Something other than Jesus. Some of you struggle like I do. You want to be right and you want others to know that you're right. And that you've read this and that you're smart. However, it might just be an attempt as it was for me to find significance outside of God himself and his love for me in Christ. And it's so pervasive. That's something I really struggle with. You can pray for me. Timothy Keller says this, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this comes because it, it's not, because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. So what are your idols? What's hit me this week while I was reading and thinking and studying is how many of you here this morning love your family? You do anything for your family. You love your kids. You love your wife. You love your husband. Look at them. No, look at them. Right now, look at, look at your family. None of them can die for you. None of them can save you from the penalty, from the power, the presence of sin, and give you a significance that your soul desires. Only Jesus can. 
some of you have sought meaning and significant in your jobs and in the possessions and the pursuit of success, and you've been very good at it. You found a great sense of significance and the power that comes with that to be able to conquer and accumulate land and property. The power to possess bigger and better things. You have found great affirmation and significance among your peers through your accomplishments. And you have made great sacrifices to get where you're at. But hear this this morning. Your jobs will never show you mercy, will never show you grace, will never show you love. They will, it will just keep asking for more and more and more. And like a slave driver, it will whip you until the very end. Your job will never die for you. The only well done that can satisfy the soul is the well done spoken to you by your Father through Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross. The only affirmation and excess that, success that will give you a soul satisfaction can be found in Christ. Others of us here look to our good works, to our morality, to our religiosity, and we take great pride in what we know and hold that over others to justify how spiritual we are like the Pharisees. We find a significance in it. And let me remind you, myself, this morning, that your works and your knowledge and your righteousness will never be good enough and cannot die for your sins and present you blameless before God the Father. That is why Jesus had to die. And the only way that those idols will ever be ripped out of your and my hands is that we need to behold him who alone is the one true and living God who has purchased you with his blood. In 2 Corinthians 3.18 it says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Abraham had waited many, many years to have his son, Isaac. God didn't seem to be being very faithful, so Abraham decided he would take things into his own hand, and he has relationships with Sarah's whatever. They have a child, but it's still not the promised child. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 99, the way of the woman is gone. She gets pregnant. We know it's a work of God. <laughs> Isaac's born. Put yourself in Abraham's place. Would you love that son? Would you dote on that son? Would you show a bit of favoritism to that son, maybe? Would you do anything for him? In Genesis 22, it says this. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to Abraham, Abraham? Abraham responded, here I am. And he said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering. A burnt offering is what you would give to for the atonement of sin, to pay for sin. I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You know the story. Abraham immediately gets everything ready and they take off and eventually Isaac, we find him, he's up on the altar asking, Dad, what's going on here? Where's 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 the lamb? Where's the sheep? And I can't imagine how Abraham would have been feeling. The son whom he loved. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, verse 9, Abraham built the altar there and he laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, referring probably to Christ here, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham responded, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The word fear there is not terrified, it's revere, to hold as of being most valuable. I think there's an Incredible picture here for you and I today. What do you love? What do you love most in your heart? And are you willing to to bring that and lay it at the table today? And offer it back to God? Because when we come to communion today, as as we eat, as we drink, as we, we remember the, the new covenant that is through the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for many, we remember the story of another father who, who took his son up into the same mountains. And this time the son was not spared. He was sacrificed, the Lamb of God, who died for you so that you could be satisfied and fulfilled for all eternity. And so as you come to the table today, which we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, for Paul is speaking here, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed by you and by me, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup that night after supper. And he said, this covenant is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, that he gave his life away for you, for me. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. If you come this morning to the table and you have an idol that you are worshiping and unwilling to let go, I would ask you not to come to the table. Because this is an expression like Abraham that we might say, I love you more than anything else. So let a person, let you yet I examine ourselves then. And so that we might eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on him or herself. That's why many of you are weak. That's why many of you are ill, sick. That's why some of you have died. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there's an opportunity for you this morning, for me this morning, to ask the Lord to search us and to see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting. Ask the Lord, what are my idols? What are the things that I'm finding my significance in, my putting my hope in? Is it my accomplishments? Is, am I trying to justify myself outside of Jesus? Am I trying to, what, what is it? And that you would be able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith, confess that and then come and eat freely. So today at the back, there's wine. It's both in that corner back there. There's, there's wine and then the juices over by Jim. I'm going to ask that you would, as we sing this song, that you would take some time to pray, consider about those things in your life that will never be able to die or give you what you want. And then I'd ask you to go and partake. And then we're going to sing a few songs together. Um, Our table is open, provided that you know Jesus and you want to live for him. So take that time to consider those things in your life. Let's pray together. Father, I... I thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of Jonah that has really helped to remind me this week of how I need your grace and your mercy. I also want to thank you for the story of Jonah that he never gets it perfectly right. He still needs your grace and mercy and so do we. We thank you that you are so gracious that you have said that you will never leave us or forsake us even when we mess up. What an amazing father that even right now we can hear the words well done through what Christ has done on our behalf. So Holy Spirit, would you take those words and would you impress them deep into our hearts that we would know that love that surpasses what what our knowledge is and that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And in doing that, would you reveal those things in our lives that have become ultimate, that have become illicit loves, And would you help us to joyously lay them down and entrust ourselves to you? Not begrudgingly. I pray that you would have your way with this people, with our hearts. Unite us together by your grace and use us for your glory. Praise in your name, Jesus. Amen.